Yes. Hey, everybody. It's your host, Nikki Lynette. Thank you so much for listening to About a Girl. In the coming weeks, we're delivering some of your favorite past episodes, paired with another great show from Double Elvis called Disgraceland. If you're not a listener yet, Disgraceland tells the insane stories of musicians through the lens of true crimes they've committed or have been carried out against them. In addition to stories about other cultural icons, whether they are actors, athletes, authors, or artists. Get ready for some About a Girl and Disgraceland episode pairings featuring Beyonce and Jay-Z, Sharon and Ozzy Osbourne, Carolyn Dennis and Bob Dylan, Valerie Bertinelli and Eddie Van Halen, Betty and Miles Davis, and more. All coming to you right here in the About a Girl feed. And if you want to chat about the show, hit me up on Instagram at Nikki Lynette. That's N-I-K-K-I-L-Y-N-E-T-T-E. Hey, I'm Jake Brennan, and I want to tell you about Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast that I host. Disgraceland tells the stories of musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly. Fleetwood Mac, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, Ozzy Osbourne, Taylor Swift, Tupac, The Beatles, Amy Winehouse, Jay-Z, The Grateful Dead, and so many more. This is not the music history you've heard before. This is an uncensored, immersive look at the lives of musical icons as seen through the crimes they've committed or that have been perpetrated against them. Did Jerry Lee Lewis murder his fifth wife? What really happened to Sam Cooke in that seedy motel at 3 a.m.? And how did the Rolling Stones wind up sleeping with the First Lady? Wait, what? New episodes of Disgraceland drop every Tuesday with bonus episodes released on Mondays and Thursdays. So get in, buckle up, and join me in Disgraceland. Available right now, wherever you get your podcasts. Rock and roll About a Girl is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Let me tell you about Woody Guthrie, the train-riding troubadour, the communist crooner who traveled the country singing anti-fascist folk anthems for anyone who'd listen. Not just a singer, but a prolific prose writer, too a class-conscious crusader for workers' rights, women's rights, and racial equality. The man who wrote This Land is Your Land and Shipping Up to Boston was such a political firebrand that even today most Americans would probably consider him a radical. But this is not about Woody Guthrie. This is about Marjorie Mazia, Woody's second wife, a woman who had her own impressive career in the arts before the folk singer even entered the picture, a protege and aide to the matriarch of the modern dance movement, who founded the first dance school officially sanctioned to teach the legendary Graham technique while raising three children at the time, a woman who spent the last decades of her life as an outspoken advocate for health care reform after watching her ex-husband succumb to a rare degenerative brain disorder. I'm Nikki Lynette, and this story is about a girl.
Marjorie Mazia tapped out a rhythm with her knuckles on the door. She had a dancer's sense of timing, even doing something as simple as knocking when she showed up somewhere unannounced. We're here to see Woody, she said, then swallowed, awaiting a response. Crickets. She tried again. We have a proposition for him, and a fruit basket. It took a little more coaxing, but eventually someone opened the door. Marjorie didn't notice who. She was too distracted. Inside, the loft apartment was flooded with a blinding sunlight that poured in through the window overlooking 6th Avenue. There, in the middle of the window, she saw the silhouette of a tiny man in an oversized shirt. He turned around and introduced himself. I'm Woody Guthrie. What can I do you for? It took another moment for Marjorie's eyes to adjust to the light. She'd heard Woody's recent album, Dust Bowl Ballads, and had been blown away by his music and salt-of-the-earth poetry. Listening, she'd imagined some tall, dark, handsome feller in a big old Stetson. Instead, she found this wiry little guy with thick, curly hair, sort of goofy-looking in his too-big flannel. Later in life, she'd say this was the exact moment she first fell in love. Marjorie had gone to the Almanac House in Greenwich Village that day with Sophie Maslow, a dancer she'd met through the Martha Graham Dance Company, the oldest and probably most important dance troupe in U.S. history. Sophie had this idea to create a new movement piece using contemporary folk music to explore the American experience. Woody had a reputation as a charming performer who sang with the voice of the common people, so he seemed like the best choice to do the music for the show. And he was. And he wasn't. There was a liveliness to Woody's singing and strumming, mostly because he never played anything the same way twice. Fine for a jam session, but not for a tightly choreographed dance project. That required a lot more consistency than he was used to. Rehearsing a ballad one day, Woody started speeding up the song, sending Marjorie tripping over Sophie, whose feet had gotten tangled up in the old tempo. Woody got the tempo right the next time around, but then he added in a few extra chords before the chorus. It just took him a moment to collect the words, he explained. He had to catch his breath, you know? Sophie was ready to drop the axe. But Marjorie convinced her to give Woody one more chance. It wasn't just that she had a crush on him. No, she knew he was capable of something extraordinary. They just had to find a way to pull it out of him. Marjorie had a knack for dealing with temperamental geniuses. She was born in 1917 to a family of Russian Jewish refugees, and as a child, she was surrounded by academic types who got into heated arguments for fun. Her mother was a renowned Yiddish poet, and her father ran a garment firm. And together they created a home that served as a friendly space for rigorous sparring over Zionism, socialism, culture, and art. Marjorie learned from an early age how to keep up. When she was 18 years old, she auditioned for the Martha Graham Dance Company. Not only did Marjorie secure a position for herself as a core member of the troupe, but she also became Martha's protege and personal assistant, keeping the rest of the company organized and on task. 
She idolized Graham, who was already a revolutionary figure in modern dance, and was eager to assist her any way she could. Where most of the other dancers were intimidated by Martha's volatile ego, Marjorie knew how to respond to her and how to get her to listen. At one rehearsal, Marjorie was walking a class of young dancers through a new routine, while Martha was off dealing with some business in the other room. The students were really picking it up, and Marjorie wanted to show Martha their progress. An hour later, Martha finally burst into the studio, slamming the door behind her. She lurked in the corner, arms crossed, watching the choreography with a silent scowl, on the alert for the first inevitable slip-up by one of the dancers. When it came, Martha walked up and slapped her in the face. Then she turned and skulked out of the room. Marjorie followed, scalding the 50-year-old dance diva in the hallway. You can't just treat people like that, she said. Whatever happened to you before you came into that room had nothing to do with any of those dancers, and it is not fair for you to take it out on them. No one talked to Martha like that. She fumed, but had no good response. She knew that Marjorie was right. In the rehearsal room with Woody Guthrie, Marjorie called on her experience with Martha Graham to get through to the stubborn auteur. She just had to tell it like it is. While Sophie continued working with the dancers, Marjorie pulled Woody aside to talk. Do you know how to count? She asked. Woody scoffed. Of course he did. Marjorie gave him a side eye. You sure? That was enough to put him in his place. Now that she had his full attention, she grabbed a pen and a pile of dress shirt cardboards and showed him how to notate the songs in his own makeshift sheet music. C dash dash G dash dash pause two three four C. Marjorie could tell that no one had ever demanded that sort of discipline out of him. And it worked. Something in Woody's brain just clicked. Stop screwing around, buddy. We're on the clock. If he wasn't already smitten with Marjorie, he sure fell in love right then. That dance piece, titled Folk Say, premiered in March of 1942. It was a hit, thanks in no small part to Marjorie Mazia, both as a dancer and as the unofficial music director. Shortly after the show closed, Woody asked Marjorie out on a proper date. She was surprised when he showed up at her door in a shirt and tie. Half the time, he'd forget to bathe or brush his teeth unless someone reminded him. Marjorie was leaving for Chicago the next morning to do another show with Martha Graham, an avant-garde ballet to celebrate the birthdays of several founding fathers. She'd have to be up early to catch the train, but she wasn't about to let that stop her fun. She was looking forward to a long, late night. Woody and Marjorie went out for drinks, then to a party at another dancer's loft, before ending up back at Marjorie's 14th Street studio apartment. As they laid there on the bed, fingers intertwined, Marjorie felt all her usual defenses fade away. Woody was gentle, sensitive, in tune with her rhythms and needs. She didn't have to deflect with her wit and charm to avoid some unwanted advances. Woody leaned in to kiss her, and it seemed like everything was in its right place. Well, except for the fact that they were both married.
Marjorie had met her first husband when she was teaching dance at a Jewish summer camp. Joe Mazia was a counselor then, with plans to eventually take over his father's accounting firm. Like Marjorie, he had grown up with Yiddish-speaking family in a home full of scholarly debate. So when he proposed to an 18-year-old Marjorie, right as she was hopping on a bus back to New York to dance for Martha Graham, it just made sense for her to say yes. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Find a nice boy from the community and settle down? Everything about Marjorie's marriage was convenient. The same went for Woody, who had a wife and three kids out west who he hadn't seen in years, though he still sent them money every now and then. At least Marjorie's husband had a bit more financial stability. He bought them a nice house outside of Philadelphia, close enough that Marjorie could still get the train back into the city. He also paid for that 14th Street apartment, so Marjorie had a place to stay when she was working. But after that first night with Woody, Marjorie started spending a lot more time in the city. And Woody all but moved in with her. At first, it was just convenience. She had a few tours planned with Martha Graham, and Woody had a book to write, an autobiography he was working on. So she told him he could stay there while she was away. Marjorie sent him postcards from the road, reminding him to stay on task, take care of his hygiene, and to make sure the apartment was clean. Things moved pretty fast after that. Marjorie got used to the idea of having Woody around, and soon enough they built a little paradise together inside that studio apartment, making love and making art and making plans for the future. Their relationship was passionate, primal, and philosophical all at once. Unlike her marriage, which was none of those things. When she wasn't on tour, Marjorie would spend her days keeping Martha Graham organized and productive, then come home and do the same for Woody. She'd read his work out loud to him to help with editing and word flow, asking questions as she went along to punch up the prose. It was during one of those late night editing sessions that Marjorie first learned about Huntington's disease. Most of Woody's prose was driven by dialect. He wrote in that rambling way that some folks spoke where he'd grown up in Oklahoma. But Marjorie noticed a sudden shift in the tone of his words during a brief bit of memoir he'd written about his mother. The words were clipped, the sentences shorter. It was all very matter-of-fact. How his sister died in a fire, how the town blamed his mother for it, how she slowly lost her speech, then her motor skills, and died all alone in an asylum with some rare degenerative brain condition most nobody heard of. The only thing the doctors knew was that it was hereditary. Marjorie swallowed. Does that mean this could happen to you? Woody shook his head, said it only got passed down through the women folk. Then he changed the subject. Marjorie didn't think about it much after that. Woody wasn't worried and she had other things on her mind. Not long after, she introduced Woody to her mother. Marjorie pretended it was a professional connection, that maybe Woody could turn one of her mother's poems into a song, which he did. But of course, that wasn't the real purpose of the meeting. Marjorie wanted her mother's approval. She wanted to make sure the two of them got along before she broke the news. She was pregnant with Woody's child and she wanted a divorce.
Marjorie spent the bulk of her first trimester in Vermont, where she was doing a summer dance workshop with Martha Graham at Bennington College. She and Woody were used to being apart, but it was harder now with the baby on the way. And Marjorie didn't exactly feel comfortable confiding in Martha about stepping away from her dance career to start a family. After that summer, Marjorie went back to her husband Joe's house to see her doctor and make sure everything was all right with the baby. The medical staff all assumed her husband was the father, and Marjorie was not about to correct them. She knew the stigma that surrounded illegitimate children. If she wanted her baby to have the best care possible, she would need her husband's money, and she would need the doctors to believe they were just another happy, traditional American family. Marjorie ended up staying longer than she'd planned. She and Woody wrote back and forth almost every day they were apart. Marjorie tried to explain that she had to stay for just a little while longer and that she was doing what was best for the baby. But Woody's anxieties got the best of him. He started wondering if maybe the baby wasn't his after all, and this was just her way of ghosting him. Marjorie did what she could to reassure him. But the more time she spent in the suburban comfort of her husband's home, the more she began to wonder if she was making the right decision after all. What would she and Woody do with a baby anyway? Cram into a studio apartment, alternating tours to pay the rent? Woody could barely bathe himself. How was he going to help raise a kid? Life with a nice accountant was the practical choice. Joe could provide them with comfort and stability. Even if the baby wasn't his. Even if she'd never love him like she loved Woody. The clock was ticking down, and Marjorie knew she'd have to make a choice sooner than later. Then she heard a familiar voice coming from the parlor of her husband's home. It was Woody. Marjorie knew that he'd been having trouble. That the producers of his new musical review were getting on his case. He was always so rudderless without her. There were plenty of nights when she wished she could have been there to ease the stress and keep him focused. But she didn't expect him to show up on her doorstep. She was even more surprised when she heard Woody and her husband laughing and joking together. Woody had introduced himself as a friend from New York, and the two men bonded over politics and the New World Order. They agreed that a second front was needed to corral the Axis powers. Marjorie was shocked even disoriented, but began to relax a little, hearing them getting on so well. All at once, she was reminded how much she wanted Woody. She had missed his incredible wit and the way that he made friends everywhere he went, so long as they hated fascists at least half as much as he did. Marjorie drove Woody back to the train station at the end of the night. It was raining, and she didn't want him to catch a cold if he walked. She was always looking after him like that. On the ride, he confessed he'd come looking for a fight. But just the thought of being close to Marjorie again made his anger fade by the time he arrived. As the incoming train sounded in the distance, he begged her to come back with him. Marjorie put her foot down. You'll always be my first child, and I'll always take care of you, she said. She ran her hand through his thick, dark hair then placed his shaking hand upon her stomach so he could feel the baby kick. We're going to raise this next child together. 
But right now, I just need time to build a better future. Woody went back to New York by himself with a promise to write a letter to both Marjorie and the baby as soon as he was settled. Marjorie came home to find Joe waiting. He wasn't a fool. It might have taken him a minute, but he'd figured out what was going on. He asked her bluntly, did she want to leave him? Yes, she admitted. She did. They agreed to stay together until after the baby was born. Joe had already signed up to join the war, so they would wait until he was overseas before they filed for divorce. That way, they could keep it quiet, avoiding all the shame and disappointment from their families. On February 6th, 1943, Marjorie gave birth to a healthy baby girl with Woody's thick hair and her mom's long legs. They called her Kathy. Marjorie kept the baby at her husband's house for the first two months so they'd be close to the doctors, just in case. Those first few months of motherhood are always rough. But Woody didn't make it any easier either. He'd get frustrated that Marjorie wasn't writing or calling or updating him enough. He wanted to know everything that was going on with Kathy, but Marjorie had her hands full. Like a jealous sibling, Woody just didn't get it, no matter how much she tried to explain. Things started looking up again once the family reunited in New York. They found a little home on Mermaid Avenue on Coney Island, not far from Marjorie's parents. Although her dad wasn't so excited about the idea of his daughter having an illegitimate child and with a Gentile. Still, they made it work. They would take baby Kathy for strolls along the boardwalk, breathing in the salt air as they talked about the future imagining all the different kinds of lives that Kathy might grow up to have. Not long after the baby was born, Martha Graham reached back out to Marjorie about a new project. She was doing a ballet with the internationally renowned composer Aaron Copeland, and she wanted Marjorie to return to the stage. It was the opportunity of a lifetime, she said. Marjorie tried to broach the subject with Woody during one of those family beachside walks one morning. Woody was strangely quiet. Marjorie figured he was upset, disappointed at her news. Then she noticed a hitch in his step. As a dancer, she was well attuned to the way the human body moved. But something about Woody's stumbling was... off. It was different. He wasn't even drunk. It was more like the gears in his brain just stopped working for a second. Then, just like that, he snapped back into his stride. That's great, he said, as if nothing had happened. He even sounded like he meant it. Then he cleared his throat. He had his own news to share. He had just been drafted. It was 1943. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
Got your happy price, price line. Parenting is hard. Harder still when your folk singer husband is off with the merchant marines, stalked by German U-boats, while you're commuting three hours a day from Coney Island to Manhattan for your famously temperamental modern dance mentor. After Woody shipped out, Marjorie returned to work with Martha Graham, both as her assistant and as a dancer. She'd passed the time on her train ride into the city reading letters from Woody who wrote her dozens of handwritten pages every day he was away. Marjorie didn't write back as often as he would have liked, but again, she was busy. Being a full-time mom and a full-time dancer is a lot of work. Her mother was a tremendous help during this time, looking after Kathy while Marjorie worked. She was still a fan of Woody, unlike Marjorie's dad. The dance piece that Marjorie had been working with Martha Graham and Aaron Copeland, titled Appalachian Spring, premiered at the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C. in October 1944. Marjorie was part of the four-person ensemble that helped frame the story. She danced a rousing up-tempo folk ballet in the middle of the show, pulling from her experience in Folk Say, the show where she first met Woody. Of course, he missed the performance. He was on shore leave from the war at the time, but had gone out on the road with some other musicians instead. Marjorie was disappointed, but she understood. They needed the money. Appalachian Spring went on to win a Pulitzer Prize the following year. Marjorie and Woody finally tied the knot in the fall of 1945 after he was discharged from the military. It had taken a while for both of their divorce papers to go through. It was a small ceremony, with Sophie Maslow and another Graham dancer serving as their witnesses. Woody and Marjorie slowly settled into a new routine with Kathy, who was now a toddler and blossoming in her own right. For a brief time, their home on Mermaid Avenue became a bohemian gathering place for all the kids in the neighborhood. Marjorie and Woody even began to collaborate together as artists again, creating and performing hybrid music dance showcases in Philadelphia and New York. Though Woody had learned a little more discipline while he was out at sea, it was still up to Marjorie to keep things organized and running smoothly. She was never resentful about this. As she often said, he was her first child. Then... In December 1946, Marjorie announced that she was pregnant again. Woody had signed a new book deal, too, and it paid a decent advance this time. For a moment, it seemed like things were looking up. Kathy turned four on a Thursday in February. Woody and Marjorie had bought her a bright pink birthday dress. She loved it so much that she wore it all weekend. On Sunday afternoon, Marjorie was at home playing with Kathy in the living room and listening to the radio. At some point, she glanced out the window and noticed the fruit stand across the street, carrying all those ripe winter oranges. She was overcome by a sudden fear that she wasn't getting enough vitamin C for the baby on the way. So she told Kathy to hold tight while she ran outside to grab some fruit. Just as Marjorie stepped out the door, Something sent a spark through the electrical outlet, 
It carried through the cheap wiring on the tiny radio sitting next to Kathy in her pink dress on the couch. By the time Marjorie had crossed the street, the radio had exploded, spreading an electrical fire through their Mermaid Avenue apartment, with Kathy still inside. Marjorie turned around to see the plumes of smoke billowing out the windows. Before she could react, the boy upstairs came running out the building with a blanket in his arms. She ran back across the street, screaming for an ambulance, and gently took Kathy from the boy. She looked down at her daughter's beautiful face. It was the only thing left. Kathy's pink dress was completely burned off, along with most of her skin. Marjorie's frantic mind flashed back to the story Woody had told her about how his younger sister, also four years old, had lit her own dress on fire. How the town blamed Woody's mother for her own daughter's death. Was Marjorie doomed to the same fate? She knew she shouldn't have left Kathy alone, even for two minutes. She knew she'd never forgive herself. How could anybody else? Kathy died the next morning. There was no funeral, although Marjorie and Woody did perform a children's program together in Manhattan, where they sang and danced to all her favorite songs. Marjorie's father even showed up for once. I don't want you here when my children are dead, she told him. I want you here when they're still breathing. The next few months were hard. The new baby, Arlo, was born in July, but even that bundle of joy wasn't enough to ease the crushing weight of sadness. Arlo was colicky and hard to please, though whether that was because of his own temperament or his parents' depression, it's hard to say. They tried taking him for walks on the beach like they used to do with Kathy, but most times he wouldn't stop screaming, no matter what they did. It got so bad one day that Woody started yelling back, shoving sand into the baby's mouth to shut him up. Then it was Marjorie's turn to scream. But as she scolded Woody for his shameful behavior, she realized that he wasn't aware of what he'd done. Like he had blacked out and something else had taken over his body for a moment. Marjorie and Woody did their best to make things work. They had another child, Jody in 1948, and Nora followed in 1950. Marjorie was now a mother of three in her mid-thirties and still doing that three-hour daily commute into the city to work for Martha Graham, whose unpredictable outbursts were getting worse, along with her drinking. Marjorie dealt with enough of that at home. It was time to make a change. She waited until they were alone in the office one evening and Martha was in a receptive mood before she broke the news. I want to start my own dance school, she said. I found a spot in Sheepshead Bay, just a few blocks away from the house. That way I can still be close to the children. Martha glanced up from her desk. She didn't say a word, and Marjorie couldn't read her reaction. So she kept talking. I've learned so much working with you. I'm truly grateful but it's time I did something of my own. The Marjorie Mazia School of Dance opened in 1951 with some financial support from Woody's latest book advance. Martha even gave it her blessing, 
making it the first officially sanctioned school to teach her revolutionary gram technique. But that excitement was short-lived. Woody's erratic behavior was getting worse. He'd disappear for days at a time, sometimes on a drinking bender, sometimes not. Then show up on the couch or the sidewalk, frothing at the mouth. Sometimes he couldn't remember his own name, even when he was sober. At one point, he flipped out on Marjorie, accusing her of using the dance school as a cover story so she could carry on some lurid affair, though Woody himself had never been that faithful. One morning, Marjorie noticed baby Nora cautiously walking towards Woody, who passed out on the couch. It broke her heart, seeing her own child so cautious and scared around her father, unsure of who he'd be when he woke up. Marjorie knew it wasn't Woody's fault. By then, she knew that he was sick, just like his mother had been. But someone had to look out for the kids, so Marjorie had to kick him out. The phone rang while Marjorie was working at the dance school. She picked it up without thinking. It took her a moment to recognize the voice. Annika Marshall, Woody's new wife. Marjorie had met her once before. She still loved Woody and wanted to make sure her children had a relationship with him, especially after Annika gave birth to their new half-sister. Annika, on the other hand, was 21 years old at the time and did not appreciate Marjorie's attempts at peaceful relations. Woody was her man now, she said and Marjorie could back right off. But Annika sounded different this time. Desperate. Marjorie could tell she'd been crying. I can't do this anymore, she said. Woody's back in the psych ward again, and I just can't take care of him, not the way you do. After Annika left, Marjorie moved back in with Woody on Mermaid Avenue. She had also remarried during their time apart to Al Adeo, a carpenter and the widower of her kid's old nanny. She had made it clear from the start of their relationship that Woody was part of the deal as well, and Al was okay with that. He kept things running at the house and the dance school while Marjorie took care of Woody. It was nice to have someone looking after her for once, someone who understood that Woody would always be her first child. Later in life, Marjorie said that they never really divorced in their hearts, that the bond they shared had always been bigger than a piece of paper. Back when they were still officially married, the doctors had always told her that Woody was drinking too much, or maybe he had schizophrenia. They didn't know enough about Huntington's disease, that rare degenerative brain disorder that killed his mother. They just kept saying that whatever Woody was sick with, it couldn't be helped. It was hopeless. But as Woody himself once said, Marjorie Mazia has more hopes in a day than fascism could tear down in a century. Marjorie knew that Woody had inherited Huntington's from his mother, which meant their children were at risk too. And she wasn't going to sit back and let them suffer the same fate without a fight. While Woody was in hospice, Marjorie started talking to doctors, first around the country, then around the globe. 
she'd bring the kids to the hospital to see him on the weekend, then spend the week making phone calls, raising money and awareness about the disease. It turned out Huntington's disease was far more common than anyone had realized. Marjorie's fundraising efforts helped to establish the first ever research commission on the disease from the World Federation of Neurology, as well as the Huntington Disease Society of America. After all, she was an organizer, the kind of person who knew how to get things done. She was appointed to key roles on the National Committee for Research in Neurological and Communicative Disorders and the New York State Commission on Health Education and Illness Prevention, as well as the National Institute of General Medical Science. After 25 years of teaching dance to countless children, she shut down the dance school and committed herself full-time to advocacy work, seeking a cure to Huntington's disease. Woody Guthrie died on October 3, 1967. In his 55 years, he wrote over a thousand American folk songs, as well as four novels and thousands upon thousands of pages of columns, letters, and other writings. He was a champion for the working class and a voice for the oppressed. He fought fascists overseas and in concert halls and picket lines across the USA. He was so prolific that his unpublished work is still creating new music today under the guidance of his daughter, Nora. But this isn't about him. This is about Marjorie Mazia, a woman who was a colleague, champion, aide, and friend to some of the most brilliant performing artists in American history. A woman who made an art out of helping other people do the best work they could do in music, dance, healthcare, and more. This is about a girl. About a Girl is produced by Scott Janovitz and executive produced by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis. The show was created by Eleanor Wells and hosted by me, Nikki Lynette. This episode was written by Tom Dunn. For sources used in this episode, go to aboutagirlpod.com. Music by Scott Janovitz and Matt Tahaney, with additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker. The show is on Instagram at aboutagirlpod, and you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Nikki Lynette.